Okay, this morning, actually, I'm going to do something a little different. I am not going to be in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, I want to uh, look at Acts chapter 26 this morning. And the reason why I'm looking there is because today we are having some testimonies and some baptisms. And I want, I want you to see how Paul, the Apostle Paul, gave his testimony. Because that's the pattern that we follow in our baptism class when I get to testimony. And so we want to look at Acts 26 this morning. Now let me ask you a question before I start. If someone followed you around for a week and they were able to observe your manner of life and read your thoughts, do you think you would be able to persuade them that you are a Christian? a person who loves and serves the living God and that Jesus Christ is indeed your Lord. Now, permit me to ask you another question. And suppose you were to give, be given the opportunity to freely give your testimony to a group of people or to someone about your past and about your present life. Do you believe you would be able to persuade someone or a group of people by using the historical events in your life story to show that Jesus has become the most important and central person in your life. What do you think of the outcome? Do you think that you can almost persuade someone that you are a Christian and they should be one also. So that, you know, when you left them, you give them something to ponder concerning their eternal soul. That's really what a testimony does. It gets somebody to think of something they have not been thinking about. Just search the scripture, and you will find that we are given admonitions concerning our testimony before a watching world. When Matthew 5.16 says, let your lights shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And then again in Titus chapter 2, it says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Now, why should anyone testify before another person or a group of people? Well, you do it for several reasons. You give praise to God publicly. As it says in the Psalms, I will tell of your name to my brethren, Brethren, in the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. And then I will give thanks in the great congregation. I will praise you among the mighty. See, it also tells about the great things that God has done in your life. Like Psalm 107, let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness and for his wonders to the sons of men. Let them extol him also in the congregation of the people and praise him at the seat of the elders. So when, you give, when you're given the opportunity 
to testify, it should be a joyful experience. You should be ready. Scripture uses uh, the word defense. We should be able to give a defense of our faith. It's a Greek word that we get the word apologetic from. St. Peter wrote it like this, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you and to give an account for the hope that is in you. See, that is what we need to be ready to do. Paul was always ready. Matter of fact, in Acts chapter 26, this is the third time he's giving his testimony. So I want to look at that testimony this morning, and I want you to ask yourself this. Have you ever given your testimony before even one person? But a second question is, have you ever given your testimony before a group of people? And of course, the last question would be, uh, you have to ask yourself, well, maybe it's not a question, a statement. Have you ever given your testimony? I guess that is a question, isn't it? At all. To anyone. Or do you even have a testimony? That's even a better question. Because all Christians have a testimony. All right, so let's look at Paul. Before I do that, let's pray. Lord, this morning, I thank you for your work that you do in people's lives. I thank you, Father, for drawing people in all kinds of ways, by all kinds of means, by your spirit, that you always bring them to the word of God if they're going to know the truth. And then you bring them to understand the person of Jesus Christ. And then, Lord, you get the message to them. And those who believe, their lives are changed. And not only do they have a profession, but they have a testimony. Because they're not the person they used to be once they met Christ. And I pray, Lord, that it would be clear today in Paul's testimony, and even our own life, Lord, that we have truly come to know you, and we truly have a testimony. And also, Lord, we have a desire. Give us a desire to tell people what you've done in our life. And I pray, Lord, that we be ready to do that all the time. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Acts 26. Notice chapter uh, 26 of Acts, verse 1 through 3. I want you to read it. It says this. Follow along with me as I read. It says, Agrippa said to Paul. This is King Agrippa. Paul standing before King Agrippa. You are permitted to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and proceeded to make his defense. There's that word defense, in regard to all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, I consider myself fortunate, King Agrippa, that I am about to make a defense before you today, especially because you are an expert in all the customs and questions or the controversial issues among the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. So in, in giving his testimony, Paul really lays out his past life before conversion, this is his outline, the circumstances which he came to believe, that's the actual act of conversion, and then the changes that took place afterwards. So something has to happen to you before you can have a testimony. And remember, all Christians have a testimony, an apologetic, a defense of the hope that is in them. Every Christian has that. No matter where you find them, they have something to say about Christ. 
and what Christ did for them. So let's just look at Paul's life before conversion in verse number 4 uh, down to verse number about 7 or 8. It says this, the first thing he talks about is his, his upbringing. It says in verse 4, So then all Jews know my manner of life from my youth up, which from the beginning was spent among my own nation at Jerusalem. In other words, that he was a strict Jew in verse number 4. In verse number 5, he gives his vocation. It says, since they have known about me for a long time, if they are willing to testify that I lived as a Pharisee according to the the strictest sect of our religion. So in other words, he was definitely a top-of-the-pile religious leader. All right? So that's who Paul was. And then, of course, he gives us the hope that he has in verse number 6. He says several things to him. Number one, the hope was promised by the patriarchs. In verse 6, it says, Now I am standing trial for the hope of the promise made before God to our fathers. So Paul is putting himself in the line of the fathers who were given the word of God all the way from Abraham right to himself. It was a hope that came from heaven, spoken first to Abraham, then Isaac, then Jacob, and onward right down the line. So that is the hope he's bringing before Agrippa and the people that are in that room that he's speaking. And then in verse 7, he gives the hope that was prefigured in the law. In verse 7, it says, The promise to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly serve God night and day And for this hope, O king, I am being accused by the Jews. See, in other words, what were the people trying to attain back then as they are today? They were painstakingly trying to keep the law. That's what they were doing. They were trying to obtain a righteousness that would be acceptable to God by by keeping the law. But they kept failing. The reason why they kept failing is because they had the transmitted of sin of Adam in their heart, and they also had their own inherent sinfulness going on, their own deeds of word, of actions, of thoughts that were going on in themselves. So you see, the law kept showing them that they needed someone to deliver them from a greater slavery than the slavery they experienced in Egypt. They needed to be delivered from the slavery of sin, in which we all need to be delivered from. See, slavery which only leads to bondage and ultimately to death, and that means separation from life and separation from the living God. So just take notice in verse number 7, it says, it says, and they earnestly serve God night and day. They were earnest about keeping the law. They were earnest about coming before God in the right way. Well, this also pointed to the ministry of the Levitical priesthood in which offered sacrifices Sacrifice after sacrifice, year after year, yet it never really dealt sufficiently with the problem of sin. 
And the reason why is because the law was never given to deal sufficiently with sin. It could never do it. In fact, the law was given to magnify our sinfulness. That the more we try to keep it, the more it showed we couldn't keep it, and the more it showed us a sinner. That's exactly what it's supposed to do. All right, Because then we say, okay, I can't do it. Right. In fact, it says in Hebrews, the priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which never take away sin. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And then Paul tells us in Corinthians, when he's talking about the resurrection, he says, listen, if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, and you're still in your sins. Remember what it says, what Paul said in or John said in the Gospel of John, chapter 8, that there's only two ways to die. You are either going to die in your sin, or you're going to die in Christ. That's it. There's no third way. All right, if you don't have your sin taken care of, then you will die in them, and then you will pay the eternal punishment for those sins. But if you die in Christ, he's paid the penalty that you don't have to pay. See, that is the difference between someone who understands the gospel and someone who does not. See, the Mosaic law always aimed and continually pointed toward the hope of Messiah, that he would be the one who delivered his people from guilt and the condemnation of sin. Well, that has always been the common thread woven through the fabric of Israel's daily life and history. It's always been the common thread that has been woven in Paul's mind as a Jewish leader. You see, the hope of Messiah was prefigured in the law and that what the law could not do, Christ did for all time, forgiving sin, washing it away, and declaring one right before God based on the righteousness of another man, the righteousness of Jesus Christ, not our own. We cannot obtain a righteousness of our own to be able to be made right with God. We just can't do it. All right. And then Paul also gave the hope of the prophets in verse number 8. He says, why is it considered incredible among you people if God does raise the dead? Because that becomes the big issues. No one's ever raised the dead. Well, Jesus has raised the dead, and he will raise himself, and he has raised himself from the dead. And so Paul is saying the prophets have always been telling us this. In fact, if we go to a book like Psalm chapter 16, verse number 10, it simply says this, because you will not abandon my soul in Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. In other words, Jesus wasn't going to rot in the grave. He was going to rise from the dead. And he indeed he indeed has risen from the dead. So see, resurrection divides Jesus from the rest of humanity. The, his eternal deity was 
strikingly and clearly manifested through his physical resurrection. In other words, the resurrection is what essentially makes Jesus different from all the earthly would-be prophets and messiahs. They did not rise from the dead. Not one of them ever did. They all died and their bodies were left decaying and corrupting in the tomb. But not so with Christ. He is risen. So my friends, the resurrection enables us to see Jesus as he really is. And who he is. God in the flesh. That's the good news. Without Jesus, there is no good news. There is no hope of eternal life. There is no freedom from slavery of sin. No being made right with God. There's no future hope without Christ. So, there's one other thing that he says about his past life, and it's this, his passion. He was, Paul was no slacker in his past life. He was passionate. And that's what he says in verse number 9 through 11. And what, what's interesting that he says here is, uh, really, he gives his reason for why he was alive in these verses. He was alive to do really one thing, to destroy the church. To the people of the way, that's what was it was called back then, the people of the way. He was determined to wipe them off the face of this earth. He was driven by anger and by rage, which are great motivators for doing something like that. That's what he did, but he included that in his testimony. So essentially, his defense is saying, I did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. So what did I do? Well, I did the same thing you're doing and other people do, only the difference was I was more angry than you. I had more backing me than you did. I was a worse fellow than you are. And that's why Paul always kept saying he was the chief of sinners, because he never forgot what he did to the church. But he didn't st it didn't cripple him. It wasn't a ball and chain. So put your attention on verse number 9, and notice all the eyes in these passages. In verse number 9 of, of Acts 26, it says, So then I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus, of Jesus of Nazareth. Verse 10, that is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but I also, when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. Verse 11, and as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, you can't say it's stronger than that, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. So Paul is saying quite strongly that I, I used all my passion, all my influence, all my powers to destroy this movement. And he had everything available to do it. That was his life and mission. That was his past life. So can't, but, and what, what, is, what is key that I want you to see about it, you see how clear in his thinking his past was and how God was using that 
to bring him to a point that he never dreamed he would go. He never thought of what was going to happen next. It was not on his schedule. It was not in his plans. See, in Paul's understanding of who he was before his conversion was very, very clear. Now, let's turn our attention to the circumstances which he came to believe, his actual conversion, and then the changes that took place. Look at verse number 12 of Acts 26. Here's his actual conversion. And brethren, you and I have a day where we actually were converted. It's not, I always went to church. I was born in a Christian family. Those are not testimonies. There's a time that you came and, and were converted because things changed when you were converted. It was clear you were a sinner under God's judgment and you know you can do anything about it and you had to trust Christ. That happened. That happens to all believers, no matter where they come from. So look at the actual conversion in verse 12. While so engaged as I was journeying to Damascus with the authority of the commission of the chief priests to do the same thing, to persecute the church, verse 13, at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun shining all around me and those who were journeying with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. The goads were like pointy sticks. In verse 15, and I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said to him, notice what the Lord says to him, I am Jesus. He didn't say, I'm Jesus Christ, the Lord. He says, I am Jesus. Because basically, at that point, Paul was not thinking about Jesus as some kind of Messiah or God. He was thinking about him as just a regular would-be prophet that was trying to get a following. So Jesus just uses his name without that mean Savior. I am Jesus, if you notice the first part of that, I am. Uh, that is definitely a reference to what God told Moses when he went before Pharaoh. Who should I tell Pharaoh sent me? Tell them I am sent you. Right? And it's a term that shows that God doesn't have a beginning or an end. He always is. He's eternal. He is the God who always existed. And so he says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. So Paul is getting something here that he may haven't seen before, he didn't get before, that, listen, I'm not just persecuting. I thought I was persecuting people. I didn't believe I'm persecuting you. And, of course, everything changed that day uh, because Paul became a believer on that day. And if you notice... Uh, that from his actual conversion experience, everything, everything changed in his life. And then that led into his present new life after conversion. And that's found in verse 16. And there's several things that have happened, had happened to him when he came to Jesus. The first one was this, that Jesus gave him a new reason for living, which he does for us too. Verse 16, look what it says. But get up, stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you to point you a minister and a witness 
not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things which I will appear to you. In other words, he's given a new reason to live, and that mission for living is coming right from Jesus Christ. And then in verse 17, Jesus gives to him a new protection. Verse 17, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. So the very people that Paul is persecuting, Jesus now turns them around and says, now I'm going to send you to them. And I'm going to send them to you with a new message. And so Jesus gives him in verse 18 a new message. And I'm going to read that in a minute. But before I read that, there are five things in the gospel message that could never have ever been accomplished even if you had an eternity to do it. And the first thing is this. You could never, you could never yourself open up your spiritually blind eyes. You can't do that. No one could do that. Paul couldn't do that. You could never, secondly, deliver yourself from the domain of darkness, the darkness and of Satan. You couldn't, couldn't do that either. No one could do that. Also, thirdly, you could never transfer yourself from one domain of light from or one domain of darkness to the domain of light. You can't do that. Only God can do that. And then you could never free yourself from the slave market of sin. You're born into it. You're in it. You cannot free yourself. And then, lastly, you could never set yourself apart to God and receive an inheritance from God. You could never do that. So look at verse 18, what it says. Here is his new message. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who I have, who have been sanctified by faith in me. There is his new message, right? And most of the people will say, well, I didn't know I was living in the domain of Satan. I didn't know I was living in darkness. No, that's exactly spiritually where you, everyone lives. Until God opens your eyes to see the truth of the gospel, you will remain there. And when people remain in that state of darkness, they're full of pride. They think they're doing fine. They think everything's all right. They think they have the answers. And if they're happy and if they have a little bit of uh, you know, pleasure in their life, they're comfortable. They're not, they're, not, they're not looking for anything. They're not looking to gain anything, to get anything. It's only when the trouble comes in that God sends, that stirs the pot. And then you begin to ask questions like, you know, why am I here? Why was I, wh why was I born? What's really going on? Is there really a God? All those questions come to light and come to the surface. And at that point, that is many times when God enters in to begin to draw you uh, to understand the truth of where you really stand with God, that you're under God's condemnation and wrath because of your sin. God is not pleased with you. He is against you. He is your enemy while you're in your sin. But you don't have to remain there. Christ can free you from that. He can give you a righteousness that you can never obtain on your own. That's who he is. See, so... Only Jesus can do these things. Christ not only sets us free and transfers us to a new kingdom, but he also 
canceled every sin debt so that we cannot be enslaved to it again. Satan can't make an indictment stick against you in a court of law again. He cannot do that because of what Christ has done. So we are really free. We are really in the light. But there's something else that Christ gave Paul and he tells Agrippa. He gave me a new heart, an obedient one. Look at verse number 19. Now, remember that he went from a stubborn, pig-headed, angry-driven, covetous, religious fellow to an obedient and humble servant of Jesus Christ. How could that happen? Unless God does a miracle in someone's life through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 19. It says, So King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but kept declaring both to those of Damascus first and also at Jerusalem and then throughout all the regions of Judea and even to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. See, his message is really clear now. He understands exactly what he is supposed to do. He is saying there, this is how I got a new heart, that I obeyed the heavenly calling, and I turned from my sin and what I thought was going to save me, by keeping the law and doing the things that I did, and I turned, left those things. I didn't add Jesus on to everything I was doing. I cut them, those off. I threw them on the pile as if it was a garbage pile, and I turned, and I trust Jesus Christ fully and alone for my salvation. That's what he did, and that's the message for everybody. The problem today is so many people say, well, I believe that, and when you give them some of the message, they just add what you told them onto what they're already believe in, but they're believing wrong. And they're believing truth that are things that are actually going to damn their soul instead of save their soul. And of course, God gave Paul something else. He gave him a new position. He was now under God's care. He went from an enemy to a son born into God's family with all rights and privileges. And notice verse 21. For this same reason, Some Jews seized me in the temple and tried to put me to death. So having obtained help from God, I stand to this day testifying both to small and great, stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place. And what was that? Verse 23, that the Christ was to suffer and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he would be the first to proclaim proclaim light to both the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Paul simply is saying, listen, God has now given me protection and care in my new conversion, in my new mission, that my life is not going to be snuffed out until God says it's going to be. Divine protection as a believer. He was assured that he was going to accomplish everything God wanted him to before God took him. And of course, This leads to some of the responses and uh, the claims to his defense of his faith. And if you notice in verse number 24 to 26, there's certain claims that have come up. There's about four of them. The first one is this. You're insane, Paul. You're insane, man. You're nuts. You have a brick short of a load, man. You lost your marbles. You're off your rocker. 
Look what it says in verse number 24. While Paul was saying this in his defense, Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad. And of course, Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I utter words of sober truth. For the king knows about these matters, and I speak to him also with confidence, since I am persuaded that none of these things escape his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. In other words, it's been done publicly. So no, when you become a real Christian, you finally, for the first time in your life, actually come to your senses. You actually become sane. So I can conclude that most of us, before Christ, have been insane. Right? And you belong in one of those institutions. You do. But in Christ, you should be set free. Because now you see clearly. But the problem is, is that you are sane, but everybody else thinks you're not. And that's the dilemma in witnessing. You're nuts. Where'd you get? I had one guy tell me when I was describing to him uh, some of the things that were going to happen in the end times. He says, it sounds all like a fairy tale to me. It does, right? But it is the truth because it is in God's word. There's another claim that came up, and that's the claim of sanity. King Agrippa, it says this, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do. Agrippa replied to Paul, in a short time, you will persuade me to become a Christian. Now, we don't know if Agrippa became a Christian. But one thing that was clear in Agrippa's mind is that Paul was sane. He was not insane. Because I'm sure Agrippa, being a man that understood all the controversies of the Jewish faith, was clicking things off in his mind while Paul was listing them. And he says, you know what? He's right about that. He's right about that. He's right about that. He's right about that. But his pride as a king was so huge that he could not come to only seek a come to only say, Paul, in a short time, you're going to persuade me to be a Christian. Well, that's exactly what he wants to do. Right? And then there was a claim also for the cure of, of humanity or the, the overarching goal of the salvation of souls. Because look what it says in verse number 29 of Acts 26. And Paul says, I would wish to God that whether in a short or long time, not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. What was he saying there? Everybody, you may not be listening up there exactly what I'm saying, but everybody around me who's in this court today, they hear me. Because that's why when you give your testimony publicly, you don't know who's out there. You don't know where people are at spiritually. And they may hear your testimony and say, wow, the Lord did that to them. Maybe he can do that to me. Maybe it's for me too. See, and people begin to think like that. And so Paul, of course, the goal of a testimony is to persuade people to come up, become a believer so you can give them the gospel. And, of course, there was also a claim of uh, to innocence in verse 30 to 32. It says, the king stood up. And the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with him. And when they had gone aside, they began talking to one another, saying this. 
This man is not doing anything worthy of death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. See, so Paul might have been physically bound, but spiritually he was free. While Felix and Festus and Agrippa and his sister Bernice remained spiritually enslaved to sin, even though they were in this high position. So, see, that is what a testimony is. It gives the past, the actual conversion experience, and then some of the responses after that, some of the present things after conversion, and then even some of the responses that people have given you as far as your testimony is concerned. So there's really only two ways to live. You either reject the ruler, God, you try to run your own life, and the result is going to be condemned by God and facing, facing death and judgment because you haven't been saved in your sin, you'll die in your sin. And the other way to live is God's way, God's new way. You submit to Jesus as your ruler, as your Lord, and you rely on Jesus' death and resurrection in your place as uh, a substitute for you because he took care of everything on the cross. And the result will be the forgiveness of God and, of course, the gift of eternal life. So what must you do? You need to pray for God to change your heart so that you may submit to Jesus as your ruler, your savior, your Lord, and then what you need to do wholeheartedly and totally rely on Jesus for the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And remember this, only those who have submitted in obedience to the call of the gospel of Jesus Christ are saved. Because actually the gospel of Jesus Christ is a command. Come is a command. If you disobey the command to come to Jesus Christ for salvation, you will be forever lost. But God doesn't want that. Neither do I. Neither does Paul. Neither does people who know Christ. They want you to be saved. They want you to go from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. So I say this too. Not only are you get saved if you're a real believer, but you have a testimony. You have a defense of the faith. You have a new position before God because of Jesus Christ. You are in Christ, and nobody can change that. And for, for, for all believers, we can say amen to that, can't we? Now, this morning, saying that, I will be back in Mark next week. But just, I wanted to share that, because I haven't really shared that kind of stuff in a while, uh, about a testimony and about you thinking if you haven't been baptized, or if you haven't really actually become a Christian yet, uh, then today may be the day that the Lord is going to bring you to a place where you believe and you repent and you trust Christ. And then you can walk in the waters of baptism. Because remember, believing comes before baptism. Right? That's why this is believer's baptism. So you have to understand what you're doing. Right? So this morning, what we're going to do, uh, we're going to have... Uh, Actually, several testimonies. Layla's going to come. David's going to come. Rachel Soto already gave her testimony in her baptism. And because we had so many people, I'm giving her a day off. Plus, she just had four teeth removed, four wisdom teeth. And so she's still recovering from that. 
but she did give our, her testimony this morning in our in our class, uh, and uh, and the Lord's continuing to grow her and, and uh, cause her to grow in her faith in Christ Jesus. Thank the Lord for that. And so David is going to come, and then Ferd is going to come. Ferd, are you here? Okay, Ferd's here. All right, and he's going to come, Ferdinand. Um, and so those people are going to come first, and then the people who are going to be baptized, I'm going to dismiss you. You can probably stay till the last testimony and then slip out and get ready for baptism, and then we'll get ready. And, of course, it gives some time for our water to get warmer. Uh, our, we're still having a problem with our heater. It, it, uh, we tested it once. It worked, and today we turned it on. Five o'clock in the morning, Dan DeFalco came to turn it on, and it, we came in, and it's still cold. So those pe- people uh, being baptized, uh, I, I pray it's warmer, all right? <laughs> okay, so why don't we have... Uh, just one uh, song or part of a song, Greg, and then uh, you guys who are going to, and I, I need a couple guys to move this pulpit, please.